Well, that was a clip from the film Big Fish. Um, in this scene, Edward Bloom is on a mission to rescue the townsfolk from the giant Carl. I mean, have you ever heard a more intimidating giant name than Carl? It's pretty great. Um, So Carl has been eating the... apologize, let me get my mic fixed here. Has been eating the, uh, the town's sheep because he's hungry. Edward... Sorry, this is really distracting. There we go. All right. So Edward decides to go out, and he has his plan hatched. How is he going to convince this threatening giant to stop eating the sheep. It's not quite what you would expect, right? Like, he actually, he begins by the human sacrifice bit, which clearly doesn't work well, but then he transitions to asking questions, listening to a bit of what's going on for Carl, and proposing a solution that's actually good for him and for the townspeople. Everybody wins. But he does it because he takes time to understand where the giant is coming from. What is going on for Carl? What he needs, what he hopes for, what he wants. And that's what he speaks to. Well, if you are new with us, my name's Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here at Koinos. And we are just wrapping up a series that we've been in. It's a mini-series. We've been in it for about three weeks that we've been calling Awkward Conversations. And what we've been talking about is this idea of engaging in spiritual conversations. Uh, three weeks ago, uh, a, a friend, Tim, another Tim, Tim Kohler, uh, shared some about his own story, his spiritual journey, and the ways that uh, along the way he kind of moved from faith to unbelief, back to faith again, with the help of lots of friends, individuals who walked with him, who had conversation with him, who asked hard questions, who sometimes were even sarcastic in ways that caused him to think, and the way that God used that in his story. Last week, we talked a little bit about the why behind having these conversations. Like, why should we bother? What's the reason? And I tried to make a case for why it's good, even if you're someone who's not completely sure where you're at with this whole Jesus thing. Why engaging in these kinds of conversations while sometimes awkward and uncomfortable, can be really good and beneficial for all of us. And this morning, we're going to wrap up by talking about how. How how do we have these conversations? And particularly, I want to look at it from the perspective of of those of us who would say, following Jesus has, has had a transformative impact on my life. Like, as I have followed Jesus, I've found new life, meaning, grace, forgiveness, I've been changed. I don't have all the answers. I have lots of questions. There are things I don't quite get. But clearly, God has been doing something in my life. And I want people that I care about, I want them to have this experience as well. I want them to meet Jesus. But can you even do that in a way that isn't, like, weird and pushy and uh, sales pitchy? Like, is that even possible? I think so. I believe it is. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning. 
how can we do that? If this is really what we want to do, how might we begin to do it? And I want to look at three different suggestions, three, three different things that I would propose to you as keys to us having these conversations well. The first one, and I, what I think is the most important, if you and I are going to engage our friends in conversations about faith, we have got to begin with them in mind. The first step of having these conversations is thinking about the person that we're speaking with. Not about what do I want to say, what's the point I'm trying to get across, but we begin with the other person in mind. Now, why would we do that? I think there's a number of reasons. First of all, at the core of the Christian faith is our belief that when God wanted us to know what he was like, when God wanted to most fully reveal himself, he didn't do that by kind of sending like, you know, little kind of doctrinal statements to us so we could have a clear sense of this is what God is like and what I ought to believe. He showed up, right? Like God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. The incarnation, that's this kind of fancy theological word for what it means when God comes as Jesus. That is God's clearest statement about who he is and what he's like. When he wanted us to know him, he came as Jesus. As one of the early leaders of the the Christian movement, a guy named Paul said in his letter to a church in the town of Philippi, he wrote this in Philippians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Christ is this recognition that God doesn't say, if you come up here, you'll figure it all out. He comes to us. He speaks our language. He experiences our life. He, he comes to where we are. So we see that in Jesus. But not only do we see that in the incarnation, but we see Jesus model that. If we pay attention to the, the life and teaching of Jesus and the way he interacts with people, over and over again, we see Jesus have conversations with people that are primarily sorry, rooted in where they're at, what, what questions they're asking, where they're coming from. Let's just take a, a brief look at one of the biographies of Jesus, the, the Gospel of John. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus uses different metaphors to describe what it is that God is up to through Jesus. Lots of different metaphors. For example, in John chapter 3, Jesus meets with this religious leader at night on, on a roof. And this guy's asking all sorts of questions. And he has this really clear picture of this is what God is like. And if this is what God is like, how does that fit into what you're doing? And Jesus says, if you're really going to embrace this new thing that God is doing in me, you're going to have to be born again. If you've heard that phrase, a lot of times that has some negative connotations to it, right? Like a born-againer is often someone you don't enjoy having conversation with because they tend to be kind of very like 
in your face about this thing, or at least that's our conception. But really that phrase comes from this conversation that Jesus has with someone who's convinced that the way he sees God is right. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to understand this new thing God is doing, you're going to have to be reborn. There's going to have to be a change that God brings about in your life for you to, to fully grasp this. It's a new thing. It's, it, it's a different thing that God is doing. So that's John 3. The very next chapter, John chapter 4, Jesus kind of rolls into a, a well in the middle of the day. And this woman arrives who has a sketchy past, very kind of sordid sexual history. And as Jesus talks to her, he kind of realizes that there's something in these relationships she's been longing for, she's been wanting. And so in the context of this conversation with this woman at this well where she's coming to get physical water, Jesus says, actually, I am living water. That thing you're looking for, that's me. I'm living water. Because she's there getting physical water. You see how that works, right? And then in the next chapter, I'm sorry, two chapters later, in John chapter 6, there's this crowd of people who Jesus just kind of miraculously fed by taking a few loaves of bread and a few fish and multiplying it and fed them all. And these people think this is pretty cool. I mean, I think you would too, right? If you like showed up to hear somebody give a brief presentation and they ended up feeding you, that'd be kind of cool. Um, more so if you're in a, uh, the context of a community where you struggle to make ends meet, you just can't show up and buy food at the Wawa, like times are tough, and here's this guy who feeds the masses. And so this crowd starts following him around, saying like, hey, when's the next meal? This is great. Set us up. And Jesus says to them, you, you, you don't really understand. This isn't the kind of, this isn't, this isn't my gig. The bread thing, that's really not something I'm going to keep doing. I'm actually the bread of life. There's, there's a new thing that we're doing here. And I know you're looking for bread. You're looking for physical bread. But really what you need is this spiritual thing that I'm offering you. And it's me. I'm the bread you're looking for. And we could go on and on, and I won't. But if you go just through John, I mean, let alone the other biographies, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's all of these different ways that Jesus chooses to explain who he is and what he's up to. And all of it is based on who he's talking to, what questions they're asking, what are the things they're longing for, what do they need. He's regularly saying, what's going on for my audience and how do I speak to them? And if we're really going to take this seriously and be people who are communicating what God is up to in Jesus, we have got to first and foremost understand the people that we're talking to. We've got to begin with the other person in mind. Not just our agendas, not our kind of preconceived ideas of what we ought to say, but what are they asking? What are they longing for? What are they struggling with? Jesus gives a great example of how he does this in one of my favorite passages in uh, Mark's gospel, Mark's biography. So there's this story of a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Um, it's a fairly tragic story if you really kind of allow yourself to think about it. So it's in Mark chapter 5, and there's this woman who, she has what, they, what Mark calls an issue of blood. I mean, basically she's been menstruating for 12 years. And according to Jewish purity laws, because of that, she has to be like live outside of the camp. She's not allowed to be around her family, her friends. She's unclean. She can't worship God. She has been marginalized. 
But she hears about this guy, Jesus, who's like healing some people and doing some crazy stuff, and she decides to find him. Now, meanwhile, this guy comes to Jesus whose daughter is on the brink of death. His 12-year-old daughter is about to die. And he says, Jesus, can you come and heal my daughter? And so there's this scene where Jesus and his disciples are kind of moving through this crowd of people who all kind of swarm in Jesus, like he's like Bono in Manhattan or something, right? Like they're all kind of around him, like looking in, trying to see him, and they're making their way through. And, and you can just kind of imagine the urgency in this father. His 12-year-old daughter is about to die. Jesus is on his way. They're walking through this crowd. And suddenly this woman with the issue of blood sneaks up behind him and grabs a hold of his robe because she thinks, if I do that, something ought to happen. And she does. And it does. She stops bleeding. Jesus, never being one for subtlety, stops, right? So they're like on their way. They're going to heal this, this girl. And he just stops, right? Puts the brakes on. You can hear the screeching. And everybody's like, what's going on? And Jesus says, who touched me? His disciples realizing kind of how ludicrous the statement is. They're like, are you kidding? There's a bazillion people touching you. You're, we're all being touched way too much. Can we keep moving? <laughs> Jesus says this. It's in, in Mark chapter 5. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it, who had touched him. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I find this to be one of the most remarkable stories in all of Scripture. Because Jesus, who I think we could argue is, you know, the most important person alive, if we're going to accept the premise that he is God in the flesh, right? He's got things to do. He's on a mission. He's going to heal this girl who's 12 years old. And here he's going... And, and he stops for this woman who nobody cares about, has no status in society, has been marginalized for 12 years, and he stops and he listens to her story. He humanizes this person who has been told for years that she is not human. He rehumanizes her. He restores her humanity even as he heals her. It's remarkable. Jesus' concern is her, what she needs, what she needs to hear, what she needs to experience. And the way that he does this is by listening to her story. And this is how we do it too. If we're going to be people who are inviting others to encounter Jesus, we have to start with listening to the story of where they are. We don't start with, here's where I think you ought to be. We start with, so where are you? What are the questions you're asking? What's your story? We listen to the other person. Very imperfectly, this is our goal, not just as individuals, but as a community. You know, at Koinos, we feel called to be a church that's constantly asking, what do our friends, what do our family members, what do our neighbors, 
who struggle with faith, who don't feel like church is really a place for them or has anything to offer them, what are the questions they're asking? When we're, when we're scheduling events, when we're thinking about the language that we're using, how are we doing that in a way that really respects and takes into account where other people are, the people who aren't in this room? What are the questions they're asking? What are they longing for? What might Jesus be offering them? This is where we begin any conversation about faith. We begin with the other person. So that's number one, and I think probably the most important thing I will say all morning. Um, But number two, if we're going to have these conversations, we begin with the other person in mind, but we also need to have the courage to be vulnerable and honest about God's work in our own lives, about our own stories. Again, if, if we look at the New Testament story of this, the book of Acts is kind of a historical record of the early church movement. And if we watch that, we hear this guy, Paul, who I just quoted. He's written most of the New Testament. He's this very famous missionary, starts lots of churches. What do we see him doing in Acts? If you read the story, over and over and over again, he's telling his story. He's telling people about the fact that he used to be a self-righteous murderer, but he encountered Christ and has been changed. And he tells that story again and again and again. And it takes some courage to stand in front of people and say, I was a prick, and now I'm a a prick who's being redeemed. Right? Like, who's being changed, who's being kind of shaped. But this is where I was, and this is where I'm going. And that same one who is doing that in me has something to offer you as well. We need to be courageous and vulnerable in sharing our stories. I mean, think about any time you want to buy a product, right? Any time you sell, what are you looking for? You're looking for a testimonial. So like if you're going on Amazon or eBay and, and you want to purchase something, what's the first thing you look at after you try and figure out, like, does this have all the specs that I want, right? You're like, what do the reviews say? What were people's experience with this? Like, I don't just care about if it looks nice or if it has everything that I want. Does it work? Does it actually work? Does it do the thing I want it to do? And for most people, well, you know, people care about truth. They care about, like, objectivity and and rational, like, does this actually fit logically? But more than any of that, because I know what some of you are thinking when you're thinking about having these faith conversations is, I don't know what, like, I can't argue if they're like, well, you can't prove that Jesus was God. I I would be like, you're right. I don't, I can't. Um, Like, that's hard. Most people aren't really looking for that. I mean, that's not unimportant, but really what they want to know is, does this work? Does this actually make any kind of practical difference in my life? And the way that we invite them to consider that is by talking about how it's worked in our lives. So a couple of years ago, um, I was in kind of a a rough spot personally, and uh, some some friends recognized that they thought it would be helpful for me to go see a counselor. Now, um, apparently this is not surprising to anyone um, except me, right? So like I was, I thought kind of, you know, this is normal. People hit these bumps. 
this stuff happens. My friends were like, no, you need therapy. Um, and so, um, you know, again, my, my initial kind of response to them when they came to me and were like, hey, have you considered going to see a counselor? was like, see, <laughs> you don't understand. I'm not crazy. Like, that's for crazy people, not for normal people like me. To which they very kindly responded, well, if you're normal, we need to redefine some terms here. Um, But they graciously, lovingly said, I hear you. I get why there's some barriers. Let me tell you about my experience. And so person after person who I was friends with shared their own personal experience with going to counseling. And these were like grounded, normal, healthy people that I respected a lot. And I was like, oh, you went to counseling? And then they told me about how that was helpful for them and the ways it had impacted them and the difference it made in their life to the point that I eventually was like, yeah, you know what? I should probably give that a try. But it was probably a little scary, felt a little risky for them to share their own story of going to counseling after my arrogant assertion that that's only for the really messed up people, not for normal people like me. But they took that risk because they cared enough about me, and because they knew I had no idea what I was talking about, to invite me to kind of hear their story. They shared what was going on for them. And I think this is critical for us if we're going to be people who are actually engaging in these spiritual conversations, to be honest about our own stories, about the ways that God has shown up in our lives. And that's going to feel vulnerable, because if you're talking to someone who's not actually sure that really God exists or that you can say that for any certainty, then for you to talk about the times when you've experienced God can feel awkward. It will. And that's okay. But unless we're able to kind of practically talk about what difference this faith in Christ has made for us, then there's really no reason for them to give it a shot. I mean, maybe it's intellectually stimulating Maybe it's something that you know, was worth considering theoretically. But really, unless there's some real way that it makes a difference, why should they bother? And that feels scary. It's going to take some courage. But I do think it is the way to engage in these conversations. Uh, there's a woman author, speaker, Brene Brown, who I love, says this in her book, Daring Greatly. She says, vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. I love that. Now, Brene Brown wasn't talking about these kinds of spiritual conversations necessarily. But it is really true. If we want to forge a deeper way, if we want to build meaningful spiritual dialogue, it begins with taking the risk to be vulnerable about the ways you have seen God show up in your own story. And that doesn't mean you have to pretend like you figured it all out. That doesn't mean you have to be Bible answer. Please don't be Bible answer person. Be honest about where you're still not sure, where you're doubting, questions you have. That's really good. That's good. Be honest about where you're really at. 
not where you think you ought to be. But also be honest about the ways that you've changed, about the ways that God has, that you've encountered God, even if it feels strange to articulate it that way. If you're like, this makes me sound a little strange, I know, but I really feel like God has been at work. We need to be people who are beginning with the other in mind, who are being vulnerable and honest about God's work in our lives. And finally, we need to recognize that this does not all depend on us. This is not all dependent on you and your ability to do everything perfectly. If it was, we'd all be done for, right? Like, we'd just be a hot mess. I mean, we are already. Like, there'd just be no hope for any of us. Now, I know that can feel a little contradictory, right? Like, so you're, you're spending this entire sermon talking about the way we ought to do this, and now you're telling me that, well, it's not really all dependent on me. Sort of, yeah. Um, but but there's, there's some tension here, right? I think about it like this. So I really like Wes Anderson films. I don't know if you're familiar with Wes Anderson. He's a bit of a, a quirky filmmaker. He's done films such as uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The, the, the Darjeeling Limited, um, The Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, etc., etc. And these films are they're, they're quirky, they're kind of dark, they don't take themselves too seriously, but yet they deal with some pretty deep family issues, some, some deep kind of personal issues, and I just I really enjoy the films. And part of it is he gets some great actors. I mean, he gets people like, you know, Bill Murray and Tilda Swinton and Angelica Houston and Owen Wilson and just some great actors. But they're kind of different every movie. It's not always the same cast. And really, for me, it, it doesn't necessarily matter. Like, if they were all B-list actors, it would matter because, they'd kind of, you know, it'd be distracting. But they're not. They're good actors, but it's not really the actors that draw me in. It's the story. The story is the real star. The way it's told, the setting, the context, all of that is compelling. That's, that's the piece that draws me in, that makes me really enjoy Wes Anderson films. And in the same way, it matters how we have these conversations. It does. I mean, if we just, you all, you may have had conversations with people who do this really badly, who they objectify you and see you as someone to kind of be manipulated and change your ideas and they're very high pressure and you've had that experience or you know others who've had that experience and you're like, no thank you. That matters. We don't want to be them. But at the same time, the star of this story is not you. It's not me. It's the story itself. It's God's story. That that God, in love, is reaching out to all of us, inviting us to be transformed, to receive grace and forgiveness, to become new kinds of people who are living different kinds of lives that are making a difference in the world, now and for all eternity. That story is the star. We get to play a part in that. We get to be a part of that story, and we want to do that well because we want to represent the story well. But we're not the star. We're not the selling point. 
It's the story. It's the writer of the story. And so I say all of that to say, I think this really matters. Again, if we're going to be people who are following in the way of Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, I think we need to figure out how do we vulnerably, honestly engage people where they're at, have these kinds of spiritual, awkward conversations. We need to do it. But we also need to have some grace with ourselves. We need to to relieve ourselves of the pressure of saving the world. That's not your job. God is the one who is at work doing that in Jesus, and he invites us to be a part of what he's doing by inviting others to explore for themselves what God might want to do in their lives. So over the last couple of weeks, now I know some of you, this is your first week. Some of you have been here two out of three. Maybe some of you have been here all three. As we've talked about this, I wonder. I'm guessing for for many of us, this is pretty new. This is something that maybe we've we've never thought about before, um, definitely not tried, and it feels a little intimidating to think about. At the same time, I wonder if, as you've heard this, if, if someone in particular has been coming to mind. If, as you've thought about this idea of, of having these meaningful yet uncomfortable spiritual conversations, it, if anybody's kind of popped in your mind, a, a family member, a friend, a coworker, someone you care about, who you know is going through a difficult time, who's asking tough questions, and you think, man, some of the things I have experienced in my relationship with God have been really meaningful. And I would, I would love to invite them to consider some of that for themselves. But man, that feels really hard. I would suggest to you that that may in fact be an invitation from God to have one of these awkward conversations. That... God, by his spirit, might be actually kind of prompting you, that person, yeah, that'd be good for you. That'd be good for you. That'd be good for them. And so I want to invite us, we're going to take just a moment as we kind of bring things to a close here, to reflect individually on what God might be saying to us. Maybe personally there's something that God has for you, or maybe there's someone that God has been bringing to mind that he's kind of nudging you, like, this could be a good conversation to have. So we're just, I'm just going to give you like a minute, about a minute. And I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Um, you don't need to close your eyes to connect with God, but it's helpful in a room like this because otherwise you're going to start looking at the person next to you and wondering uh, what their Facebook feed says as they scroll through. Um, so close your eyes for a moment and just kind of ask God, what he might want to say to you about the things we've talked about in these awkward conversations, or maybe who he might want you to engage in a conversation. Take about a minute. Well, Father, um, we, yeah, we acknowledge that these conversations can be really awkward, Um, but I, for one, am glad that people were willing to have, have the awkward conversations with me. I'm thankful for my friends here, for those who would say they're followers of Christ who have also had others engage them in some of these awkward conversations that have helped them kind of move forward. And even if they're not followers of Christ but are people who have really been 
benefited by having some of these spiritual conversations. I'm really thankful for that. I'm thankful for the way you work in our really flawed, imperfect attempts at having these conversations. Father, would you help us, as, as you brought people to mind or, or as we're thinking about particular people we might want to talk to, would you help us to be humble and begin with them in mind? To ask the question of what do they need? What is going on in their life? What are they longing for? How do I listen? How do I humanize? How do I connect with them in ways that affirms them and humbly invite them to hear how you've been at work in my story and how you might be wanting to work in theirs? Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us a heavy dose of empathy and compassion and humility. And help us to do this with joy, knowing that at the end of the day, this is not about us doing this perfectly or getting the words right. It's about us joining you in your redemptive move to show everyone how deeply you love them as revealed in Jesus. So thanks. We pray this in his name. Amen.